Hello and welcome to the Automotive News Europe podcast for February 10th, 2022. I'm your host, Doug Bolduck, Managing Editor at A&E. Thanks so much for stopping by. Matei Rimats likes to say that Volkswagen and Porsche have invested hundreds of millions of euros in his education. He plans to use what he's learned over the past 12 years to create new generation Bugattis without spending billions. Rimats, who turns 34 years old later this month, took over the hypercar business from Volkswagen Group last year. He says he inherited a profitable company and that the combination of Bugatti and his own Rimats brand is by far the biggest player in the hypercar market, considered by many to be the Elon Musk of Europe because of his ability to make the seemingly impossible possible. Mate Rimats is refreshingly frank, personable, and down-to-earth. Among the many things we talked about, Rimats described the massive challenges he's faced starting an automotive company from scratch in Croatia. Hello, Mate. Thanks so much for being here today for the Automotive News Europe podcast. Hi, Doug. Thank you for the invitation. Mate, I'd like to get started today with an overarching question about what have been the most challenging parts about creating an auto industry from scratch in Croatia? Well, I don't think we have enough time to cover that. You know, it's just 12 years, but if if I think about what we had to go through, it feels like several lifetimes, you know, going from a garage to today, uh, one and a half thousand people in several countries was a wild ride. I would say the biggest challenge was really keeping the company alive, be it through fundraising or or like bank loans or customer projects, uh, whatever it was, you know, to keep the company afloat. That was most of my focus for most of the time. Now, the last couple of years, that's not really the biggest problem anymore since we have big and significant partners on board. But still, it's, it's you know, we are not yet, you know, over the, the edge or, or out of the dead valley of companies, you know. Uh, it's still a company that needs cash from investors, albeit we are. We have been profitable for most of the years, but because of the big growth and investments, we needed cash. So that was a big one. But then, you know, doing this in Croatia, for example, growing so fast, you don't have any industrial buildings. So when you grow, I looked at every building probably around and here, you know, even ridiculous things like the old airport or some old, you know, factories that were doing something completely different and so on. Because there's no industry here, there is simply no buildings that you can use, no infrastructure. So you have to do everything yourself. You have to build it up, uh, take an old shopping center and convert it into a factory or build it from ground up or, you know, those kind of things. Even, you know, just like hiring hundreds of people per year, you know, getting hundreds of chairs or, or laptops or whatever, that's a challenge here. Uh, not now in the, not just now in the, you know, uh, pandemic situation where everybody has supply chain issues, but we always had that problem and you know not having the talent here nobody had any experience even you know not just automotive but if you look like if you want to hire people who have general let's say manufacturing experience understanding you know supply chains and and the manufacturing process and so on you don't even have that not just for the auto industry but in general so it was really building up 
from scratch as much as it goes without a local investment community, without uh, a local automotive industry, without industry in general, was pretty tough to build it up here. But I asked myself if it would have been a lot easier somewhere else. Pro probably yes, but maybe we wouldn't have been around. I guess all of the struggles and everything that we went through had to be exactly the way it was for us to still be around. Yeah, I guess that's, that's the way it had to be. You're opening an R&D center near Zagreb that you proudly say will not have fences. What's the underlying message? You have to rethink. I think Elon Musk does that well. Like, ask yourself why, like, you know, first principles. With the global competition for talent, where, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, if you asked an engineer, what's your dream job, let's say an European engineer, the engineer would have said working for BMW or Mercedes, I guess, you know, one of the car companies. Now, today, I'm not really sure if that's the case. So, uh, first of all, the question is, why do you need fences? Can't you just, when you build already from, from scratch, like make it somehow nice and, and protect the things you need to protect without excluding people? Because it's not anymore about a closed company. It's about how you involve the, you know, the community, the the surroundings, you know, we have kids, neighbors driving around and the neighbors, kids uh, here driving around with their little bicycles and coming to our company and, you know, walking around and looking at how we do things. And I would feel terrible if we had to exclude them. So we want to like be part of the community and also make the best possible place for employees where, you know, they don't have to announce if a friend is, is coming over or their kid or whatever. And, you know, if we have to protect something, which is not a lot, you know, I mean, we, we have factory tours and, you know, we are very open as a company. So the few little things that you need to protect, like, you know, a design for a car that will come out in five years or something that we work on for, I don't know, you know, a big car company that is very sensitive about those things. Okay, that's protected and there are ways to do it. But uh, basically, it's two things. It's one is providing the best potential possible environment for the employees. And I think fences don't fit in that. Um, and, you know, we are surrounded by nature and so on. So that was also very important for me. And the second one is involving the community. How many supercars has Remats made since being founded? And how will that change with the opening of the new facility and the addition of the Nevera? So when I started the company, I wanted to build supercars. And that was the reason for me to start a company. But I figured out in order to survive, like th that's a business case where investors don't really want to invest in and it only delivers revenue like years and years you know down the road because it takes a lot of time to develop a car so how do you survive until then and we started surviving by working for other car companies at first you know some prototype projects and then higher volumes and so on so our business model actually changed from or, or I mean there was no business model at that time but uh, I basically changed pretty soon to focus mostly on the stuff we do for other car companies. And that was keeping us going while on the side developing our own cars. So the concept one, you know, the first car that we presented at the Frankfurt Auto Show 2011, we were eight people when we presented it or, or 10 people, something like that. You know, we, we were super small, super limited funding and so on. So it was really, you know, really a, a first attempt. And we built eight of these cars. But, and at the same time, we were like, you know, scaling our 
technology business in these early days, we were doing like 100 batteries for Koenigsegg, 150 for the Est Martin Valkyrie, you know, those kind of things. And now we have moved into the second stage where we announced the Nevera, or we started to produce the customer cars of the Nevera just recently. Uh, there will be 150 of those, so 50 per year. And we are building 80 Bugattis per year, approximately now. And uh, at the same time, we are working on projects where we are producing batteries in tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands uh, units per year for uh, big car companies. Not just batteries, but also powertrains, e-axles, uh, infotainment systems, and stuff like that. So the hypercar side is not really moving the needle in terms of, you know, volumes. And there it's more of, you know, showing what we can do, and, but still building a very successful, profitable company out of the hypercar business. The, uh, let's say, combined volumes of Rimac and Bugatti, it's by far the biggest player in the hypercar market. And we are talking about hundreds of millions of revenues there. So it's not, you know, a little thing as well. But the other side of the business, the, the component business, is really the scalable part. And that's where we, you know, take it big and we have huge ambitions to be a big player there. Uh, but also the cycles, there are very long. So the project that you have started maybe, you know, this year, it will really see scale production in five years. So some of the projects that we are working on already for a couple of years that will go into, you know, tens of thousands of units will come online in a couple of years. A few moments ago, you mentioned Bugatti. Could you explain the company's structure, basically what Remats owns when it comes to Bugatti and what Porsche owns when it comes to Remats? We had a very, very simple legal structure. I founded a limited liability company in Croatia 12 years ago. Like in Germany, you would, it would be a GmbH. You know, uh, in Italy, it would be an SPA. It's just a simple company. And it was the same legal entity from the beginning until just a couple of months ago when uh, we did this deal with, um, with Porsche where, you know, all of the investors invested in this legal entity before. So Hyundai, Porsche and so on, all of them had shares in that Rimac Automobili uh, uh, limited liability company. And, you know, it was kind of a strange company, actually, having two totally different businesses like hypercars and components. And everybody was confused. What are you actually doing? So now, you know, we were thinking about separ separating it for quite a long time. But when this Bugatti opportunity came along, that was like the trigger. OK, let's finally do it. So we separated the business into the hypercar business and the technology business. And above that, now the, the Rimac Automobile company, which was the one that I founded, is now just renamed uh, Rimac Group. And actually, it's, it's more or less an empty shell now. And all the people and all the assets were transferred to the hypercar business and the technology business. And when we did that transfer, there were like 1,200 people in the company. So out of those 300 were moved to the hypercar business, plus the Bugatti colleagues that joined uh, into the hypercar business. So Bugatti was transferred into the Rimac hypercar business. So the ownership of Bugatti was transferred into the hypercar business. So, um, and the other side uh, got the rest. So the technology business got the remaining 900 employees that are connected to that. So basically you now have the Rimac group, which I am the biggest shareholder of. Which, so I, I have 35-ish percent, something like that. Uh, Porsche has somewhere like 22 at the moment, Hyundai has 14 or 12, and a bunch of other investors that are uh, with smaller shares, including also the employees who have about 5%. So every employee in the Rimac group has shares in the company. And um, then that company owns 100% of Rimac technology. 
and 55% of Bugatti Rimac, which is the hypercar business. Uh, the rest of uh, 45% of Bugatti Rimac is owned by Porsche directly. Does the Molsheim plant come under your umbrella or does that stay under Volkswagen Group's umbrella? No, no, that's managed by us. So Bugatti Rimac now has four management board members, the CTO, CEO, uh, CFO, and COO. So the COO is Christopher Piachon. He is in Molsheim for the last 20 years, basically started with quality and, you know, was head of production uh, in his last role. And uh, currently he's the chief operations officer of Bugatti Rimac. And uh, uh, he is also the president of Bugatti France, or uh, the, the legal entity is called Bugatti Automobiles. So uh, he's, let's say, managing that location as a plant manager and also the chief operations officer of Bugatti Rimac. So he's also responsible for the production of Rimac cars in Croatia here. It's hard to believe when you were starting this 12 years ago that uh, when you got 12 years down the road, you'd actually have the access to two plants. <laughs> when you were just talking about how difficult it was, it was even to find a location to do anything. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we are, because of the big road, we are now scattered around uh, 10 different locations. And, you know, when we started to build a campus, you know, I, I have this repeating history of people outside and inside the company not believing me that we can achieve what I set out to do. So when we started to work on the campus, you know, defining the campus and so on, we were like 400 people. And I uh, set it out to be for two and a half thousand. And everybody was like, Mati, you're crazy. What the hell? Like, we are 400. Why do we need such a big campus? You are insane. You know, you're not Apple. Why are you doing that? And so on. And now, you know, the campus is in the middle of the construction phase. And by the way, there is live camera. Um, for, you know, you have just Google Rimac campus and there is a whole website dedicated to the campus with the live feed of the construction. And it's really going super fast. But we realize now before the campus is built that we will uh, grow out of it even before the first person moves there. We'll be bigger than what can fit in the campus. So we are already thinking about campus two and campus three or, or mega campus or whatever. Uh, because we are growing so fast. So uh, also because of that, until the campus is done, we are in like 10 different locations. We have a factory here where I'm sitting, a small one. We have another one five minutes from here. We have two other locations uh, for production. We have multiple uh, locations for offices. And that's one of the growing pains, just, you know, being scattered around. And I think space is really so... Funding has been the biggest problem, but right after that is space. And uh, it, it was never enough space. And often, you know, I would come to a location and say, wow, this is so huge. Like even, even this space where we are now, we came here when we were 10 people. And I was wondering like, okay, we will never fill this up. Never. I mean, this is so huge. Like this will be great forever. And then, you know, a couple of years later, <laughs> you have people sitting on people and, you know, you... you I was just thinking about one little garage we have here. What, which transitions this little piece of the company saw? Uh, initially, we were like welding frames for bicycles there for our bicycle business, great. And, and then we were like doing wiring harnesses there. And then we had component production in there. And then we had an office for a separate project. And then we were having a workshop to build up a car for another OEM. And uh, then we had like 3D printing in there. And now it's, um, it's a location for testing battery cells, like just one room in a company. And if you imagine how 
much effort of the team and and the and myself personally and the management team goes into playing this Tetris with all of these locations. It's like so inefficient. So I think it's really important for companies to think long term and sort this space issue out like really long term and believe in themselves. Because if you don't, you'll be just, you know, all the time, uh, you know, just adding a patch on a patch instead of doing something properly that will solve your problem. So it sounds to me like you're probably already looking down the road at how you could get even bigger. And hopefully people won't be doubting you this time when you say, well, we're going to be 10,000 employees. Yeah, exactly. I, I had an all hands meeting in the company like uh, uh, just before Christmas and I showed them, OK, this is the plan now. I know it looks absolutely insane and uh, it's unbelievable, uh, unbelievable that we will achieve it. But like that's the plan. And, you know, history has showed us that we uh, achieve or overachieve the plans, not always in some things we are behind. Like, for example, we are, you know, saying very openly delayed with the Nevada production. Uh, because it's just a super complex project and everything involved to, to take it to, to serious production. But uh, in other aspects, we over-delivered in many, many things. And, you know, let's believe our own plans and, you know, not, not like, you know, be schizophrenic. On one side, do these plans and, you know, uh, uh, promise that to investors and customers and whatever. And on the other side, think, hmm, you know, it sounds too crazy to, to be true. So let's maybe you know, uh, do, do a little bit more conservative thing instead. So, yeah, uh, and, but one thing also that, that I learned um, was, you know, not to make those projections public because if I tell you now, you know, we'll have 10,000 employees, that's a huge, you know, burden and, and promise and, you know, things change and businesses change and circumstances change and, you know, you might have different opportunities and so on. And if you don't do exactly what you said three years ago, you know, people will tremble on you and say you are a liar and whatever, uh, which I don't want to do. So uh, this is for the employees and we are super transparent and everybody knows what's going on inside the company. But uh, when it comes to, to making promises to outside of the company, we rather do it and then, you know, show it rather than talk about it. Okay, you just saved me from asking that next question. So <laughs> I was going to ask you for some hints, but I totally understand the process because as you said, sometimes you get stuck in the weeds of explaining why you didn't achieve a certain goal. And that takes away all the management time from doing the things that you really want to focus on. But I will ask you if you could give an indication of the new timetable for the Nevera. You mentioned that there's been a bit of a slowdown. Do you have a new timetable in mind when it comes to bringing that to the market? The car is actually in production, so the first customer cars are on the line. We will deliver the cars in the next two months, but it, it's mostly the issue is the availability of parts. So we have super low volume and, you know, uh, people might ask themselves, okay, so why the hell is it a problem to, you know, have parts for so few cars? And we are very vertically integrated, so we are making a lot of the parts ourselves, but especially like processors and chips, it's really a problem and we make all the electronics in the car ourselves. It's our own hardware and software. And we have to procure thousands and thousands of electronic components for each single car. And that's proving to be a the biggest challenge. So we have finished the European homologation crash tests. We just have two left for, for US, which we all plan to do within February. And so the homologation should be done within February. And then hopefully, Right after that, we will start shipping the cars to customers. So I definitely 
expected to be in Q1. Might be uh, a bit later, but that's that's kind of the plan to, to ship the first cars in Q1 and then uh, have basically 50 cars, uh, production rate of 50 cars per year. It sounds to me like you are being hampered by the same issue that all automakers are facing, which is the, uh, the chip crisis, right? Yeah, that's a global challenge. And, you know, we feel it also on the other side of the business for the higher volume things that we are doing for other OEMs. And it just feels like, you know, it's a snowball effect where, you know, or, or, or maybe the Dutch tulip, tulip uh, effect on the, on the Dutch, you know, stock exchange where, you know, uh, w- the panic starts and everybody starts hoarding chips and buys everything off the market they can, even if perhaps maybe they don't need it, but they don't want to get into the situation to, to uh, be left out. So, you know, we are paying, you know, for a component that's maybe $1, we would pay maybe 10 or, or 20 or 50 in some cases, maybe 100 even, just to not, you know, stop the, the production. So uh, even for us low volume manufacturers, it has been a huge challenge. And we had to, t- to change actually a few designs. We had to change some uh, components on the cars just because we couldn't get the, the chips and the processors. So uh, yeah, it has been a, a huge challenge for us. You mentioned that Remats has been profitable over the years. Can you tell us whether Bugatti is profitable? And if not, what's the key to getting there? And if it is, how will you make it even more successful? Bugatti actually has been very successful and profitable in the last few years. So that wasn't the, really the problem for Volkswagen. The problem was, you know, what comes next? Because if you look at Bugatti, it's all based on a W16 engine, which is almost two decades, you know, old. Which, which is an amazing power plant and it you know, created the hypercar business, uh, the hypercar scene that we have today and so on. It was the first car over a thousand horsepower, first car over a million, first car that was going over 400 kilometers per hour. So it's an amazing thing. But now with the next stage and, and everybody knows how, or, or everybody knows about the speculation of how much Volkswagen has invested to make that car a reality. To be honest, I don't know the exact figure. You know, it's already 15, 20 years ago and nobody can really answer that question, to be honest. So it was a huge effort for Volkswagen to get there. But the last few years, uh, Bugatti was absolutely profitable, was a really successful business. And, you know, Winkelmann, Stefan Winkelmann, the previous CEO, did a really, really good job. And I, you know, uh, he, he left a really good company for me to, to continue building on that legacy. But doing the next thing where... Volkswagen has a huge portfolio of products already on the market and in the making. And what they are really good at is to recycle that amongst the group, you know, to start with a, I don't know, Volkswagen Golf and, you know, make a Skoda, make a Seat, make a um, whatever out of, out of that car. Uh, or even for a higher end premium cars, you know, start with the A8 and make a Phaeton, make, a, make a, um, a Bentley out of it, you know. But what do you do for, for a Bugatti? There's nothing in the group. So if you want to make a Bugatti, and you know, Ettore Bugatti said a very important thing that is like the ethos of Bugatti. If it's comparable, it's no longer Bugatti. So that tells you immediately, you can't just take something off the shelf. And for Volkswagen to develop something from scratch for a hypercar, you know, first of all, where is the focus and alignment with Volkswagen's business? And second, 
is like it would cost them so much just because it's such a huge organization. And then somebody in Volkswagen had the brilliant idea in my view because it's like a win-win for everybody. Okay, but we have Rimac in the portfolio, like Porsche has invested in that company. Hmm, you know, there's a guy who <laughs> could lead that. So why not talk with them? And that's how it started. So they knew we had the technology and, you know, maybe somebody was at the beginning thinking simplistically, okay, they have the Nevera, let's just make it a Bugatti and off we go, we have an electric Bugatti. But I was actually the guy to say, hmm, I don't think that's the right thing for the company. It's the easiest thing. Uh, it, the easiest thing for us would be to take the Nevera and slam a Bugatti logo on it and call it a day. But uh, I was against it. And I actually think that Bugatti, you know, I'm an electric car guy, but Bugatti should still have a combustion engine for some time. So there will be still a future with the combustion engine in Bugatti, but uh, developed in a way that it's uh, financially viable. So, you know, we have developed the Nevera, everything from scratch. You will not find one piece in that car that you can find on another car, not one single piece. So, you know, the monocoque, the suspension, the, the powertrain, the gearboxes, the motors, the inverters, the, the battery packs, the modules, the, the infotainment, all the issues, everything is specifically developed for that car. Even stuff we, we don't do ourselves, like let's say the, the fans and the pumps, it's all developed specifically for this car by external companies. And uh, we have done that on a shoestring budget uh, compared to what, for example, Volkswagen has invested uh, in the Chiron without compromising on performance or quality or safety or anything like that. We did a full homologation, a full development program testing and so on. So we will do the same for future Bugattis, creating really exceptional products that are not comparable, but without spending billions on them. So that's really the key. So Bugatti is profitable when it has a product that it can sell, but we just announced that Bugatti is completely sold out until 2025. So there is no Bugatti you can buy right now. Everything is sold out, which is an incredibly good position to be in. We sold 150 cars or we got orders for 150 cars in 2021. Um, uh, we delivered 80 cars in 2021 and uh, there will be a future Bugatti uh, that is now being developed here from scratch um, but with a reasonable development budget, hopefully. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about the powertrain on that vehicle? Are you going to slowly inch it towards the electrification through maybe a plug-in hybrid or something that you will develop that is a, a whole new idea when it comes to putting electrification in a car? Well, it will be heavily electrified, but we'll have a very attractive combustion engine. And let's just say it's going to be nothing from another car. You know, there was a funny situation. I was visiting Wolfsburg, uh, I don't know, a year ago or so for negotiations about the whole deal. And, you know, in Wolfsburg, they have this uh, Autostadt and they have like a pavilion for every brand of the Volkswagen group. And Bugatti had their own little pavilion there. And I was going into the pavilion, I visited all of them, but I, of course, went also to the, to the Bugatti one. And there was a W16 engine. And there was a guy there who recognized me and he said, Whoa, you are Matarimats, what the hell are you doing here? Like, why are you standing next to a combustion engine, like to this W16 engine? Like, can I take a photo of you next to this engine? Like, it's so bizarre that you are next to that. And I'm like, okay, remember that. <laughs> remember what you just said. I will not tell you why, but just remember what you, what you just said here, that I don't fit to that engine. Of course, nobody knew about the Bugatti transaction at that time. 
so <laughs> the, the, that was a funny thing but uh, yeah when, when people see the next generation Bugatti I think they will be surprised that uh, you know I was pushing for something like that because people just associate me with electric cars but I was always a performance guy and you know a car car freak and uh, Considering the brand and the customers and you know the, the technology available, I I think that we are developing the best possible uh, solution for Bugatti, which is not an electric car today. It will be one day, but not today. Mati, with all that you've experienced and been through, if you could go back in time and talk to your younger self, what advice would you give? I think I would actually do everything different because I learned so much. You know, I, I sometimes like to say that Volkswagen or Porsche and Hyundai have invested hundreds of millions of euros in my education. So I'm a very well-educated person now, <laughs> which I wasn't when I started the, the business. So I, I really did a lot of stupid mistakes, of course, uh, since I, I didn't really know what I was doing. But on the other hand, it kind of, I guess, had to be just like that, just like, like it was to, to, to get me here, you know? So it's difficult to really, really uh, say, you know, what, what should have been done differently. One thing like thinking from today would be like, you know, to try to keep uh, anonymous longer, like to work under the radar and, uh, you know, just to, to take away the pressure of people's expectations and, you know, like, you know, don't tell anybody what you're doing, what you're planning, just, just, you know, do it. But on the other side, like, how do you then attract investors and partners and customers? So, you know, I, I don't like the media attention. And, you know, especially here in Croatia, we are so standing out, you know, like, uh, uh, like, like totally, you know, we, we, there's no similar comparable company in Croatia and everybody on the street here recognizes me and so on. I would prefer more privacy. So that's, that's like one thing, but I, on the other side, can you really build a business like this without being publicly known? I think that that's, that's um, probably impossible. So one thing that I will try to do is focus a lot more on, um, on uh, the, the, let's say underlying technologies from early on and uh, just develop the technologies, uh, before, I mean, from the beginning, I really had the, the desire to do everything in-house, but we couldn't because we didn't know, we, we didn't have the money, we didn't have the equipment, whatever. But still, I, I would even stronger focus on that because that's so important and like think about uh, how to scale the technology from the beginning um, and not, you know, develop something super expensive that only works for hypercar and you cannot then use it for, for higher volumes. So that's, I think, one thing I will do differently. So try to, to stay under the radar for a much longer time and uh, focus even more on the technology. But in the end, as I said, I guess it just had to be exactly the way it was. We appreciate that you are above the radar and that we've had a chance to talk to you. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us on the Automotive News Europe podcast. Thank you so much, Doc. We reached Mate Rimac at his office near Zagreb, Croatia. If you have an idea for a future podcast or would like to be a guest on the show, please reach out to me at dbolduck at autonews.com. For breaking news, please visit europe.autonews.com. You can listen to this podcast and a wide range of others from the Automotive News Group on iTunes, 
Spotify, and Google Play, or on our website at europe.autonews.com. That wraps up this episode of the Automotive News Europe podcast for February 10th, 2022. I'm your host, Doug Bolduck, Managing Editor at a and Thanks so much for stopping by. We hope you'll tune in again next week.